We can turn within your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 3. For our Lord's Supper sermon series, we're going through covenants. So tonight we're going to see the covenant of grace promised in Genesis 3.15. So we're just going to look at Genesis 3.15 this evening. I will read all of Genesis chapter 3 to set the context for us. So Genesis chapter 3, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Adam called his name, uh, wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man, uh, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our Lord God, we are thankful for the promise of the covenant of grace. We're thankful, O God, salvation is offered to your elect, offered to sinners in Christ. We're thankful that he is the mediator of this covenant. And we're thankful, O God, you do reconcile sinners to yourself in this blessed promise. We're thankful for this blessed unfolding in your Old Testament. We're thankful for the blessed fulfillment in the New Testament. We're thankful that Christ is the seed of the woman. He's the seed of Abraham. He is the prophet like unto Moses. He is David's greater son. And we're thankful that even here at the fall, when sin and 
death enter into this world. We're thankful, O God, we see your promise of salvation in this one. We're thankful for this first gospel. We're thankful for this first proclamation. We pray, O God, that we would see your blessed plan of redemption as it unfolds throughout your scriptures, throughout your living word. We pray, O God, that you be pleased to save sinners through it. We're thankful, O God, even the Old Testament is able to make one wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ. And we're thankful, O God, though we have the fulfillment in the New Testament. And we're thankful we have this mighty one, this warrior, this one who crushes, this one who destroys, this one who is king, this rider in white who comes to make judgment, this one who is the king after the order of Melchizedek. And we're thankful that we have this priest king who comes and conquers and destroys sin and death for his people. So may you encourage us today, help us to see the reality that there is still enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Lord, help us to be reminded, O oh God, of your triumph, that Christ's triumph in the seed of the woman. So encourage our hearts today. Be pleased to save sinners this day. Strengthen your saints this day. We pray in all things you would be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, sometimes there is this dichotomy that is espoused, perhaps in our modern context, perhaps even in some churches, that there's a difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is just some big ogre in the sky. It's all about his wrath and anger, wants to destroy everything, send fire down from heaven. And the God of the New Testament is just some loving, wonderful, big baby, one wonderful, big grandpa in the sky. But what happens when people highlight this or say this, they misunderstand the God of the Bible. Misunderstand the God of the Bible is the one who does not change. And the fact is, brethren, that we see God's great grace, not just in the New Testament, but we see it in the Old Testament as well. And usually when people say that, they say, there's no grace in the Old Testament. I usually ask myself, have they ever read the Old Testament? Because God's grace is not just sprinkled, but it's saturated with his, uh, throughout the Old Testament, showing his grace, his mercy, his kindness, especially as it pertains to saving knowledge, as it pertains to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all over the Old Testament. And we see God's great grace by way of covenant. And that's what our series is. It's focusing in on covenants, how God enters into relationship with his creation. How we saw with respect to the covenant of works last time that God entered into a covenant of works with Adam. Adam had to do something in order to live. But we know Adam fails. Adam violates that. Adam breaks that covenant. He fails mightily. And in the midst of that failure, throughout the curse that we see, especially to the serpent, we see God promise someone who would come. Promise a Christ, a seed, who would come and destroy the seed of the serpent. And this is where we see that first gospel, the first proclamation of the coming one who would save, the first proclamation of Jesus Christ. It is that covenant of grace that is promised, and it emerges in the midst of a curse. So even right off the bat, right, off, right after there is sin and death that comes into the world, God provides the way of salvation in this one. And there is a big-time major problem that we see in this text. It is that fall. It is that entrance of sin and death into this world. Why are people the way they are? Because Adam sinned. And all those in Adam have fallen and sinned as well. And the judgment that is legit that comes from Adam's violation is the reality of death. Sin and death enter into this world. That's why you and I struggle with sin. That's why there is that reality of death because of the failure of the first Adam. But brethren, we must be thankful for the last Adam. 
And we need this last atom in order to escape death. And thankfully, there, uh, there, even as the Bible unfolds, we are longing to see that last Adam come. As redemptive history moves throughout the Old Testament into the New, we're longing for that one who would come and do what no one else could do. And really, there is a delayed answer throughout Scripture. And really, as we un- Scripture unfolds, we're asking ourselves the question, who is the seed of the woman? Who is the one who would come? Who is going to crush the head of the Serpent, And throughout history, throughout the Bible, we see that unfolding between the seed of the woman and the seed of the servant. Is this the one who would come? So in Genesis 3.15, after the fall, God promises salvation uh, to the seed of the woman, uh, to, uh, through the seed of the woman who would save his people. And we'll look at this first gospel under two headings this evening. First of all, enmity between seeds, verse 15a. And secondly, war between seeds in verse 15b. So the enmity between seeds or hostility between seeds and the war between seeds. So let's first look at the enmity between seeds in verse 15a. And again, note the setting. It is the fall of mankind. Remember the covenant works. God said to Adam, you shall not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. From the day of you eat of it, you shall surely die. The implication is if Adam does not eat from that and he engages and be as fruitful, multiply and fills the earth and subdues it, that there shall be eschatological life, shall be eternal life that will be given to this one named Adam. But Adam fails mightily. And really, Adam and Eve are the only people that actually had free will with respect to choosing between good and choosing between evil. Brethren, we don't deny that there is free will. The problem is, with respect to free will, because of the fallen nature, man only chooses that which is sinful, unless God saves one's soul. But Adam and Eve, they had the ability to do what was right, spiritually good, with the possibility of falling, and newsflash, they fall. Adam was supposed to till and keep. He was supposed to be that priest-like king who expanded God's glory throughout the world to tend and to keep it, but he failed miserably with respect to it. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we see that entrance of sin into this world. We see the cunning serpent. We see this one who comes and begins to deceive this woman. And perhaps there is speculation that the serpent was the favorite animal of Eve. Most ladies are like, never ever in my life would I ever have the serpent as my pet. Maybe some of you would like a serpent, but most people do not want a serpent. And so the serpent was more cunning. Perhaps that's why. Wow, here's a serpent. Let's have a chit-chat with this one. So the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he begins to operate with that deceptive charm. He begins to question God's commands. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? It's not so much a big in-your-face type of challenge. It's just a little tweaking. Has God really said that you shall not eat from every tree of the garden. The woman said to the servant, she affirms, yes, we may eat from all the trees of the garden, anything we want. We can eat from anything in paradise except for this one tree. And from the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent challenges that. Verse 4, and said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's interesting is some translations render that be like gods. Not so much be God himself, but make yourself a god. 
knowing good and evil. The epitome of idolatry with respect to what man ought to be is trying to not just be God, but to be God's. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman, she falls for this. She sees the blessing or sees the the, the pleasing nature of this fruit. It says, verse 7, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. See, it looks nice. It tastes delicious. It looks pleasing. Something that looks good, not all that glitters is gold, brethren. In this case, it was between God's command versus what looked nice, and she decided to take and eat. She grabs it, she eats, and Adam's right there. The worst husband in history, right? Well, maybe not. But he's not a very good husband at this point. At this point, he should have said, Honey, don't listen to that stupid serpent. He should have broke its neck or killed it, or maybe not. There's no death yet. But in any case, said, Go away, you stupid serpent. That is wretched and wrong. But Adam doesn't do that. He's just as culpable as she is. In fact, more culpable because he is the head of his wife and he is the one with whom God made this covenant of works. So Adam, rather than dealing with it, says, okay, I'll eat some as well, honey. So he does. He, uh, she also gave her husband with her and he ate. And then verse 7, the eyes of both were opened And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Separation, sin, selfishness enters into this world. There's a reversal of the created order. Man, male and female were created equal, but man was over his wife and then man and wife over the beasts of the field. Now there's a reversal of that. The serpent has authority, then the woman, then the man. So sin enters in. Judgment is about to be rendered. Verse 8. A lot of people read this and it looks like God's just going for a stroll in the garden. That's not what he's doing. This is judgment, brethren. This is a theophany or the appearing of God for a specific purpose. And it is to bring judgment upon what just happened. And it is covenant lawsuit. It is the God coming and rendering, uh, you know, questioning what happened, what went on, and rendering a verdict. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Again, not a nice, not going for a walk and for a stroll. God doesn't really walk because he's, you know, doesn't have a body, but it's just descriptive of what's happening. He's come, he's coming to render judgment. And they understand this. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. As if they can hide from the omniscient God or the omnipresent God. But you know what? Sin makes one delusional, and they try to do it anyway. And so they do hide. They do hide, try to hide from, the, from God, which they cannot do. So God calls out. Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? As he said, I heard you. And notice the blame game happens. I heard you. I was afraid because I was naked. God says, Who told you that you were naked? And the man says, It's the woman. She did it. She's the problem. She gave me some food and made me eat. Again, nobody takes responsibility for their own sins these days, do they? Well, thanks, Adam. That starts with you. But I'm just as culpable because I'm just as sinful as Adam. I would have failed just as much as Adam did as well. You and I all would have failed just as much as Adam did as well. But he says, it's the woman she gave me of the tree and I ate. Let's blame her. 
So then God questions the woman. Then the woman said, the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? Well, it's the serpent who did it. Well, not me, not my fault, but the serpent deceived me and I ate. And this then brings us to that curse that is given to the serpent where this gospel is promised. So he says to the serpent, you're going to eat dust the rest of your days. On your belly you shall go. You're going to be more cursed than all of the cattle. You're going to eat dust. Judgment has been rendered. The fall has come upon, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman, so on and so forth. So there is going to be this hatred. There is going to be this this perpetual enemy between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, some, some commentators like to say this is why women hate snakes. This is not what's referring to. Brethren, I hate snakes. I despise snakes. In fact, I have a, you know, an, an irrational fear of snakes. I don't want to die from snakes. So maybe that makes me a woman. I don't know. But women, not just women, uh, men struggle with that fear as well. So that's a really weird take. But the point is not so much specifically snakes. It's about the woman and the devil behind a serpent. So he, he calls forth this judgment upon this one. There's going to be enmity between you and between her. Uh, there's going to be this enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seeds. And again, it's going to be enmity against the devil. The serpent is the adversary of God. And it's going not just to extend to the woman and the, then the devil, but it's going to extend to their offspring as well. Referring to men who are good, or perhaps men who are redeemed, men who are saved, and men who are evil. The offspring here refers to men. See, there is a gospel promise and a gospel curse. There's election and reprobation. God chooses to save a specific people before the foundation of the world. We don't know who they are, and God does so in his sheer free grace. We still believe in the preaching of the word of God, but also mean God chooses and appoints some to die. And they die because of their sin, because of their vileness. God, you know, God righteously should bring judgment upon all of us, brethren, even the elect, for violating his law. But God in his mercy chooses a multitude that no man can number, a multitude that he shall save. A lot of people, when they hear about election and reprobation, go, that's not fair. Brethren, you know what's not fair? God saving sinners. God saving wretches like you and I. So every one of us deserves eternal damnation. But God, out of his sheer good pleasure, promises to save according to his goodness. And this is even promised here in Genesis 3.15. You know what's interesting? We see this enmity unfold in the book of Genesis, don't we? We see the seed of the serpent, Cain. We see perhaps even uh, the, the, the daughters of men, in Genesis 6, Ham, Esau, seed of the serpent. We also see the seed of the woman, Abel, Seth, uh, the sons of God, Shem, Abraham, blessing. And even Abraham receives blessing like Adam, Jacob, Joseph, Judah, all these ones. There is that enmity that happens throughout Jacob versus Esau, Isaac versus Ishmael. There is throughout there is this tension and this enmity that is found throughout the book of Genesis. And what's interesting is Jesus himself alludes back to this, doesn't he? You know, Jesus knows how to lose friends and alienate people, doesn't he, with what he says? 
In fact, in John chapter 8, when he's speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes concerning who he was before Abraham was, I am, he says something that would, you know, not go over so well in our modern context today. When he's speaking to this, this, the, the Pharisees, he says... In verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. The desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He was of God hears God's words, and therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. Freaky, isn't that, for our modern delicate sensitivities? But Jesus understands this, brethren. Jesus knows this. The Pharisees and scribes are of their father, the devil. And Christ himself is the seed of Abraham. In fact, Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, we see this fulfillment even with the seed of the woman, but even more narrowly with the seed of Abraham, where he talks about the one seed now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is this enmity between the seed of the devil and the seed of the woman. And there is certainly a messianic connection, this, this crushing this destroying, this overtaking one's enemy. In fact, we see enmity language used in 1 Corinthians 15. The Lord Jesus is going to make his enemies a footstool, quoting Psalm 110. He's going to go out for war and make destruction against those who are against him. He's going to destroy the seed of the serpent and the serpent himself. Jesus is a mighty, strong, all-powerful one who goes out for war. And even the first gospel proclamation, brethren, is one of war and one of destruction. So even the Messiah, even with David, David was a mighty, strong dude. He fought bears, he fought giants, he fought lions, he destroyed, you know, nations. That was the mighty David. And the Lord Jesus is David's greater son. And thankfully... The same language of enmity that is used in Genesis 3.15 is also used in Romans chapter 5. In fact, Romans 5, you know, verse 12 talks about the two Adams, the first Adam, the last Adam, all dying in one Adam, living in the second Adam, those who are in him. But verse 10 speaks about how the fact that highlights the fact that we were once enemies We were once hostile to God, but we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That's how enemies become friends with the Lord God most high. And in time and space, before the seed of the woman, uh, seeds of the woman, those in the Lord Jesus Christ become, you know, you'll believe on him. There is, they were once dead in their trespasses and sins. And he makes enemies friends for if, when God through the death of his son, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more have we been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we're saved by his life, we're saved by his death. 
He goes out to, 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 to make judgment against his enemies. But one thing he does is he brings in the seed of the, his offspring. He brings in those who are his. So he is a mighty warrior who goes and makes destruction and the one who brings destruction for his, uh, to, to save his people. But brethren, this reality that is given to us in Genesis 3.15 uh, should you know, come as no surprise that it applies for us in our modern context as well. There is the present reality of enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Those in Christ and those not in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's difficult for us sometimes. You know, our modern or the modern liberal creed is everybody's that just, you know, should gather together. We should all love one another and sing kumbaya. That's what we should be doing. But the liberal creed, one of the liberal creeds of liberalism highlights the idea of there's this brotherhood of man. Brethren, spiritually, that is absolutely false, according to Genesis 3.15. The reprobate seek to take out the elect. They, they are of their father, the devil, and seek to take out those who are of the seed of the woman, those who are of Christ. Persecution and enmity will always be in this world until it ends. Some people are looking for a utopia in this world, but Jesus Christ himself says that if they hate me, they will hate you. They are not going to like us. They're going to hate us. They're going to want to persecute us because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The reprobate cannot understand that. And thus they seek to take out the elect. They seek to take out God's people. And there is much persecution that goes on around the world from people that don't understand. The people that don't recognize. The people that don't see, brethren. We pray often for, for brothers and sisters who are assaulted in other parts of the world. Who are killed. Who are imprisoned who are kicked out of their villages for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, this enmity is still present between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we must recognize that. Again, it's that spiritual realm. Men can be called enemies. That is absolutely true. I know we're not supposed to wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. How do those principalities and powers work, brethren? Through men. And there's one specific psalm that would just cause modern, delicate evangelicalism to freak out even more. Psalm number seven. God is angry with the wicked every day. There's none of this hate the sin, not the sinner garbage. The Bible is totally against that very idea. God hates the wicked every day. Day. There are enemies of God. There are those who are of the seed of the devil and want to take out the seed of the woman. And the battle is not just with men, Ephesians 6. It's that war within the spiritual realm, but where that is played out is through men. Those who name the name of Christ and those who spit in the face of Christ. Those who deny the Lord Jesus Christ those who hate him. There is present reality, the present reality of enmity in this world. And it should not surprise us. It should not take us and catch us off guard. It is according to Genesis 3.15. Right away, when the gospel is proclaimed, there is this reality of enmity.
So that's enmity between seeds. Let's then look secondly at the war between seeds. So there's enmity between you and the woman, her offspring between your seed and her seed. And he goes on to say, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It highlights what the seed would do. There's this assurance of destruction that the head of that snake would be crushed. And yay, because I hate snakes, literally and figuratively, crushing the head of this one, the devil. There's going to be a delayed fulfillment. Again, we're asking the question as the Bible unfolds, who is this seed? Now, what's interesting, notice the Lord God highlights the woman, not Adam. He says it's between you and and the woman. And perhaps it highlights again God's grace even in this. She was the one conned by the devil. Yes, Adam was the head and all die in Adam. But nonetheless, she was the one conned by the devil and brought that in. And then Adam then ate as well. And so what's interesting as she is the one who brings that in, God in his goodness, it's through this one who has fallen that he's going to bring about salvation. It highlights his grace and goodness even to this one who failed miserably. And what's interesting is in Genesis, or sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2, you can turn there. Everybody freaks out about 1 Timothy chapter 2. No, women should not be pastors. No, women should not preach. No, it does not mean they're subhuman. It just highlights what God has done and God has ordained for his church. Men are to be pastors. There's a lot of good things women can do, but they're not supposed to teach in the church. And the reason he gives is he goes back to creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So he's focusing in on women's roles, but then he goes all the way back to the fall. But then notice... Verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And then verse uh, 15, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Verse 15 softens verses 11 through 14. And there's a lot of mixed understanding of what this means. Does this mean a woman has to have children? Does it highlight that she has to be saved by childbearing? Is it salvation by works? It was saved because you have children. The answer is no to all of those things. The the proper translation should be, she'll be saved through that childbearing. The way the grammar works, Paul is trying to highlight very explicitly that the the needs to be there. The childbearing. And it's highlighting salvation in the seed of the woman. It's highlighting this promise, going back to creation, going back to the fall, going back to what happened, that salvation shall come through the seed of the woman. So it's all about salvation through Jesus Christ. And even notice it goes from singular, she will be saved, referring to Eve, in childbearing if they continue in faith. There's a transition from the singular Eve, but as well to the the plural referring not just to Eve, but all women who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be brought in, shall have eternal life, shall be saved through this one, the child bearing. So salvation very much comes through this one, this Christ, this, this seed of the woman, even as Paul alludes to it and refers to it here in Genesis or 1 Timothy 2, 
15. Now, that doesn't mean there still isn't a curse for women. It doesn't mean there isn't sorrow and pain and feminism from Genesis 3.16. Yes, feminism is an ancient problem. The ladies at, in Ephesus during 1 Timothy chapter, uh, with 1 Timothy chapter 2 struggled with that. They wanted to teach. They wanted to have authority. And God, Paul says, absolutely not. And even here, the language that's given to Eve with her curse, verse 16 so verses 14 and 15, it's the curse to the serpent. Verse 16, to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That desire there refers to the idea of encroaching, the idea of pouncing, the idea of coming upon him to usurp him. Women have always desired to usurp men, and men have always been nancies about it as well that's just the age-old problem let's get it right can men be mighty and strong and women submit to those mighty strong men and trust them and rely upon them and look to them and help them and all that they need to do it again doesn't say women are subhuman with that but god's ways do work and feminism is not one of them so there is going to be problems there's still going to be curse there's still going to be struggle there's still going to be Issues, And we see it throughout. Barrenness is a key theme, key problem throughout the book of Genesis. But through the seed of the woman shall come salvation. Then notice we see the curse of the man in verse 17. It's reversal of the created blessings. He failed miserably. He didn't care for his wife because, or because you heeded the voice of your wife. Again, husbands, don't have to listen to everything your wife says if it caused you to sin. And it's very clear with what he did and having eaten from the tree of which I commanded you saying you shall not eat of it cursed is the ground for your sake in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for dust you shall return so there is this there is this curse for the man there is this reversal of blessings but in the midst of all these curses there is still that promise of salvation and this is what we call the covenant of grace the covenant of grace is god offering salvation to elect sinners in the lord jesus christ and we receive that through faith in him our confession highlights that in chapter 7 verse or paragraph 2 but when it comes to the revelation of this gospel and its connection with other covenants, if you don't understand everything tonight, that's fine. Hopefully you see it as we go through. There's other covenants in the Old Testament. A Noahic covenant, we'll see that next time. Abrahamic covenant, we'll see the Mosaic covenant. And then we're going to see the Davidic covenant. In those covenants, the gospel is promised or the covenant of grace is promised, but it's not ratified yet. It's not bound in blood just yet. The, the, the ratification of the new covenant comes with the coming Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I love the way our confession uh, uh, writes this or explains this. We're talking about what the covenant of grace is. Chapter 7, paragraph 3. This covenant, the covenant of grace, is revealed in the gospel. Again, covenant of grace versus covenant of works. Covenant of works, you must do something to live. Covenant of grace receive what Christ has done for you. One you earn, the other is a gift. And so the covenant of grace is revealed in the gospel. 
First of all to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. And afterwards by farther steps. And those farther steps are those other Old Testament covenants. Until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. So we see the promise right away. Who is going to be the one that saves? Well, first of all, it's going to be the seed of the woman. There's going to be this, there's this redemption promise. There's going to be reconciliation. And then it's further revealed about a full, gives us a fuller picture about who he shall be. With Abraham, he's going to be the seed of Abraham. And Abraham, even there's a distinction between the spiritual seed and the temporal seed. And the Abraham as a spiritual seed refers to all those who believe on this Seed, But nonetheless, it's going to come about through a temporal one. It's going to come about through Abraham's literal, physical seed, the people of Israel. And then it narrows further. Okay, let's have this Mosaic covenant now. And in that covenant, the people of Israel, after they're brought up out of the land of Egypt, God says to them, do this and live in the land. It is a covenant of works. But in that covenant that is given, he highlights, he gives types and shadows, the blood of bulls and goats, the various festivals all point to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the types and shadows that point to him. Then it narrows further. David, a king. And then even with David, we're looking for the next one who would come. Is it Solomon? Is it Joash? Is it Josiah? Is it Hezekiah? Not quite. We're still, they're all good kings, but they fail in a lot of ways. We're still waiting for David's greater son. So the whole Bible unfolds by way of covenant. It starts broadly, all man has sinned. Then there is salvation, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. And then we see it narrow further. Noahic covenant, God is going to delay judgment. The Abrahamic covenant, it's going to come through this specific seed. And then it's going to be a further narrow to the, the literal seed, namely Israel. Then it's going to be further narrow to David, a king. And then he comes. Jesus fulfills all those things. And the Bible unfolds again to bring in all of mankind, as the Bible unfolds in redemption throughout with the book of Acts, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even till the ends of the earth. Brethren, covenant is really just that structure of scripture as we see history, as we see redemptive history, as we see salvation unfold throughout the entire scriptures. If you didn't get any of that, this is what this is about. This is what we're doing in this sermon series. To see it unfold. We're going to see the Noahic covenant next time. Then we're going to see the Abrahamic. Then Mosaic. Then Davidic. And then we're going to see you know, how it's fulfilled in the New Testament. That's the purpose of this. So that we see God's salvation throughout the scriptures. Back to Genesis 3.15. And notice we see it is this warrior motif type idea. Again, it starts with this crushing and destruction and in fact, there are other places where there's allusions back to this. 1 John 3.8, as John writes to assure his hearers about their salvation, to give them that assurance, he wants to make sure that the little children are not deceived. Talks about salvation. Verse 9 is not talking about sinless perfection. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. The way the grammar is working there highlights habitually. Yes, God's people sin, but, but it's, not, it's highlighting the fact that God's people do not want to sin. It's not highlighting sinless perfection there. But in verse 8, he talks about the devil and the son of God. 
He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. See the woman, see the serpent. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Similar language is used in Hebrews chapter 2. He's talking about bringing many sons to glory. He says in verse 14, And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that is, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those through fear of death were all... uh, we're all their lifetime subject to bondage. There is this destruction. There is this, this destroying of death that this seed, this woman, brings about. And Gill says, this is the Messiah, the eminent seed of the woman, who should bruise the head of the old serpent, the devil, that is destroy him and all his principalities and powers, break and confound all his schemes, ruin all his works, crush his whole empire, strip him of his authority and sovereignty, and particularly of his power over death, and his tyranny over the bodies and souls of men, all which was done by Christ when he became incarnate and suffered and died. He brings about salvation through destruction. As the seed of the woman shall bruise your head, shall bruise the head of this one and destroy his head and crush his stamp on that wretched, awful snake and destroy it. But the seed of the serpent is still going to have his time. It's going to be short. You shall bruise his heel. Again, there's this sign of tension. But the devil will not prevail. There's always the assurance that this serpent will fail. He might have small victories, but he's under the leash of God. Even in 1 Peter chapter 5, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, but it is God who has Dominion. Again, that's hard for us, isn't it? I think the devil is on the leash. That God is ordaining all those things. Doesn't make God the author of sin, but he is ordaining all things that come to pass, even with this one, the devil. And so even in the interim, God leaves Satan to test the fidelity. Uh, uh, this is from Waltke. In the interim, God leaves Satan to test the fidelity of each succeeding generation of the covenant people and to teach them to fight against un truth and he comes we see in Zechariah 3 he's making accusations we see with Job he's making accusations as he walks around to and fro in the earth and comes back to the council of God and makes accusations against the people of God trying to take them out and we see its culmination the bruising of his heel is that crucifixion the enemies do seek to strike down the Messiah and they think they've won Acts 2 or, 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 or they think they've won But as we see, it was God's plan and purpose, Acts 2. Those whom you hated, those whom you killed, God ordained that these things should come to pass. That's the language in Acts 2. Acts 3, Acts 7, it is that application that the people of Israel were the ones who killed the Lord of glory. It was all part of the plan of God, but it shows the enemy strikes down the Messiah, yet the Messiah has the last laugh and the final say even in genesis there's this escalation of sin between cain and abel the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent where abel is killed by cain so there is this reality there is this promise there is this assurance 
there's still going to be the serpent who shall bruise his heel. And while Adam and Eve in wait for the seed of the serpent or the woman to come, they have to leave. But first in verse 21, there's more of God's grace. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. God doesn't just leave them on their own. He gives them tunics. He gives them clothing. He clothes them before he sends them away. And then he does send them away. They become like us to know good and evil. They can't take from the tree of life. They're gone. They're put out. They're driven out. They're cast out to the east of Eden. And a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The curse still stands and they must leave the garden. But thankfully, brethren, we live on the other side of that seed of the woman coming, don't, coming, don't we? The Old Testament saints looked ahead. It would have been, yeah, Abraham believed. It was counted him as righteousness, looking ahead. You know, many other saints looking ahead. David believed, looking ahead. We see the promise or the, the, the examples of one who looked ahead to the coming Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 11. But we live on the other side. Christ has come and he has crushed the head of the serpent and he is reigning now supreme triumphant and he is bringing his kingdom in even though we live in this present evil age and there still is that enmity christ is reigning supreme even now and the beauty is that their salvation both the old and new testaments is the same it is faith in this one jesus christ in fact in second timothy chapter 3 15 paul says that the, the sacred scriptures referring to the old testament is able to make one wise unto salvation and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even Jesus says, or with respect to that parable, Lazarus and the rich man. He even said when he's, when he's, Father Abraham, he's describing it. And, and then the, the rich man is asking after they've died, Lazarus and the rich man have died. He's asking Abraham, send, go back. Please send Lazarus back to, te- back to tell my family. And what does Abraham say? They have the law and the prophets. Because they're able to make one wise unto salvation. Jesus says, all the law and the prophets speak concerning me. So there is this reality that it's Christ who fulfills these things. And it highlights his present triumph even now. Yes, there's enmity, but there's triumph. Isn't that a tension that we live with every day? That is what it means to live in the, in, in the, inter, in the, 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 the overlapping ages, brethren. Paul talks about this age and the age to come. We live in that now. We live in this present evil age. God has delayed his judgment, Noahic covenant. But, not, but, but he's brought in the new heaven, or inaugurated the new heavens and new earth, and it started now until this age ends, and then that one shall go on forever. Brethren, when we live in this life, there is that tension, that struggle, that, that battle. We've, we've died with Christ. We're raised with Christ, but I still struggle with sin. Lord, I believe, help my un. Belief. But there's much assurance that this truth gives for God's people. In fact, Paul in Romans 16 refers to destroying the devil, crushing Satan. Lots of crushing language in the Bible, isn't there? Even in the New Testament. A lot of destruction, even in the New Testament. A lot of wrath, even in the New Testament. Chapter 16, verse 20. He's talking about the obedience of believers Wise with respect to good, pure with respect to evil, highlighting God's ways versus our way. And notice, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. 
That's in the context of divisive people, the context of contrary doctrines. Avoid those ones. There's going to be ones who come into the church to try to take out the church. Not just those outside the church that want to, or governments that want to oppress the church, but there might be ones who come into the church and try and gut it from within. There's those realities as well. We have to face every problem on every side, those without, those within. And so he's talking about this, and he's talking about those who do such things, do not serve the Lord, for obedience become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf. I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Because there will be a time, verse 20, that the reason, the basis, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. That's another weird saying, isn't it? The God of peace will crush Satan? Brethren, how does peace come about if not for first destroying the ones who stir up division? Christ crushes the seed of the serpent. He crushes that wretched one, and God's people shall crush the Satan under our feet shortly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is that triumph and this promise that is given even to the Roman church during their struggles. There's also another place where this is alluded to. You can turn with me to Revelation 12. I admit, Revelation is a hard book, isn't it? It's a difficult one. But I do think Revelation 12 here is referring to the crucifixion. I know sometimes a lot of people believe or assume that what's going on in verse 7 and following refers to before the fall. That's how Satan came out of heaven. That, that's not true. One time we were watching Superbook. Does anybody remember Superbook? I used to watch it as a kid. It was like an anime old thing, 81 to 84. Yeah, we loved it. So one day I wanted to find it for Lucy to watch for fun. And then they have a newer version of it. So we started watching it about the fall. And guess what happened? This is what they thought. They, they had this start. I'm like, why are these angels? What's going on here? That's what they viewed it as. It was, it was referring to you know, when Satan falls from heaven before what goes on in Genesis 3. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Revelation 12 is referring to the crucifixion, the coming of that serpent, that ancient one versus the woman. In fact, we see a lot of that language as John is seeing this great sign. He's seeing what's going on. And, but, you know, when we come to Revelation, this visionary prophecy, and there doesn't have to be, there's no chronology going on here necessarily. You can go back and forth. You can do in visionary prophecy what you can't do in narrative. And so there's a lot of pictures and symbols, but the symbols that we see, we see a woman clothed with the sun in verse 1. We see the dread dragon in verse 3. And we see that he drew some with him, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But notice then her child was caught up to God on his throne. He came down, he was incarnate, and then he was caught up. He was resurrected on the throne. In fact, one thing that Revelation does need to pay attention to is it draws our attention back to other visions that we've seen in the book. That's its point. It's recapping certain things from different angles. It's highlighting what's going on from different sides. And in fact, Revelation, brethren, is written to the church at that time to give them encouragement that Jesus reigns supreme on the throne. 
It's to give them assurance that whatever they're going through, that Christ is reigning supreme. And John sees that glimpse into the heavenly realities. And he's reminding them, or there's this, God is reminding John, or through this revelation, this uh, Revelation 12, this assurance of what shall happen. Her child was caught up, the woman fled into the wilderness, where she was a, has a place to, uh, prepared by God. Then we see verse 7. I don't know that I understand everything that's going on here, but I understand some things. But notice again, the dragon, Michael's there. When I was a kid, I liked Verse 7, because it had my name in it. And his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So, verse 9, the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, and he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And then notice verse 10 explains when that happens. Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accuses them now before our God day and night has been cast down. And notice how they overcome. They overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. How is it, brethren, that they overcome? How is it that he's cast down? Satan is crushed and destroyed at the crucifixion. That's where we see this fulfillment of Revelation 12. That's what he's referring to, alluding back to Genesis 3 and then bringing it back together with the Lamb who has come. And those who died in the Lamb have their hope and trust in Him. And then verse 13 goes on to talk about, well, if he can't get to him, he's going to try and take out the church, which he tries to do. He tries to get to them. He tries to destroy them. He tries to get to Christ's body. But he's already won the battle. And that's the triumph and comfort that this book is meant to give to the Christians that were suffering at that time. And it's meant to be a triumph and reminder for us when we suffer at this time that he has already won the battle. In fact, the same language is used in Revelation chapter 20. Again, as we're reading the book of Revelation, when things repeat, pay attention. That's what we should be doing with Revelation. Paying attention to the repetition that is going on in it. Because again, John's drawing our attention, or God's drawing our attention back to things already said. Now I should say as a caveat with what I'm about to say about Revelation 20, I don't get my end times view from Revelation because it's nuts, right? Because there's a lot of difficult things with it. I get my end time view from the rest of the Bible and from the New Testament where there are clear phrases, this age and the age to come. I mean, I mean that's very clear to me. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then comes the end, when he ends over the kingdom, when and handing over happens at the same time in 1 Corinthians 15. We take the clear passages and we use them to interpret the unclear passages. So now we're going to go to an unclear passage, and I'm going to tell you why I'm right about the millennium. But notice, recapitulation of the same language, recapping. Same idea. He's been cast out of heaven in Revelation 12, and now someone's cast out again. Or not again, but another angle to what happened. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, 
and bound him for 1,000 years. Not literal. Visionary prophecy. Figurative. Meaning a long time. 1,000 years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should no more deceive the nations. The devil is out there, brethren. He prowls around like a roaring lion, but he cannot deceive the nations no more. In fact, a lot of the language we see where he was being an accuser in Revelation 12 alludes back to Zechariah 3 where he accuses the people of Israel. That can happen no longer because it spreads out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. So he's cast out. He's destroyed but not removed. There's going to be a final judgment and we'll notice what happens. He's going, there might be times when the saints die. And I think verse 4 for me is very clear why this doesn't refer to a millennial kingdom. Then I saw the souls of those beheaded. Not the bodies. The souls of those beheaded. Reigning with him. Reigning with Christ. It refers to those ones who did not bow down to the beast, who did not bow down to idolatry, who did not bow down to anti-Christian religion or anti-Christian government, whatever the circumstances might be, to the point where they lost their heads and lost their lives. And there's that assurance, if we lose our heads, if we lose our lives, we shall reign with Christ during the thousand years. The first resurrection, brethren, I believe, refers to the time when we die in this, in this present life and our bodies and souls are separated. That's the first resurrection. The second resurrection refers to when Christ comes back and body and soul are reunited. That's what that refers to. The first death is dying uh, in this life. The second death is eternal punishment. So they know, so it's that he saw the souls and even the language of binding and bound. The word is not used in many places in the New Testament. The, you know, one of the other places it's used is in Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter four. Mark chapter four with binding the strong man. That's not right. I should know that. Mark chapter three. Mark chapter three. A house divided cannot stand. He goes on, it's against the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Christ. And in that, he talks about how this Christ has come. The focus of that is that the Christ has come, the Messiah is here, and he destroys the works of the devil as he casts out demons, as he casts out unclean spirits. The age of the Messiah has dawned, and the strong man is bound by one stronger than him. So with all those things together, with Genesis 3, with Revelation 20, it highlights that the, 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 the dragon, that serpent of old, is destroyed by the crucifying, cru- crucified Christ and his work. And I believe the thousand years refers figuratively to the time between Christ's first and second coming, brethren. We are living in a thousand years right now. And it gives comfort and encouragement and triumph to God's people in the midst of this present evil age and the midst of suffering that God's people go through. There's this heavenly Adam. There's this salvation in him. And he's destroyed the works of the devil at the crucifixion. 
And this triumph is meant to give God's people much encouragement because there will be a new heavens and new earth. He shall be crushed in fullness when the, when the rider in white comes back. We see his rebellion after the thousand years. He's destroyed and brought down. Then there's judgment. Then there's all things new again, all things at once. You know, the judgment or resurrection, judgment, new heavens and new earth. Same flow in First, uh, Second Thessalonians 1. Again, clear with unclear. There is destruction or there's resurrection, white, uh, judgment, then new heavens and new earth. And one thing that's promised in Isaiah 65 or prophesied, Isaiah 65, so much allusion from Revelation 21 and 22 back to Isaiah 65. I think I've said this too much. My favorite thing about the Bible is how interconnected it is. Now, there's so much allusion and back and forth between the Old and the New Testaments. But Isaiah 65, as he talks about the glorious new creation, notice in connection with the reversal of the curse for the woman in verse 23. Again, using Old Testament language, describe the new covenant realities, the new heavens and new earth realities. They shall not labor in vain. Nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed Lord and their offspring with them. And even notice going back further, verse 20, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build on and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. We might be beheaded in this life, brethren. But there is much glory and joy and rejoicing in the new heavens and new earth. That doesn't mean we can't enjoy it now. And recognize the triumph of our Christ now and the power that is in him now. But this is what gives us hope. The triumph of the Lamb. The mighty Christ. The mighty Lord. And if you do not believe on him, you are his enemy. And he will come and make his enemies a footstool. But one thing that this one does in his cross work is he makes enemies friends through it. He brings about reconciliation. If you believe on this one, you shall have eternal life. You shall have, have triumph with this one. You shall be raised with him, raised now and raised on that final day. There's much joy and blessing that is found in the forgiveness of this one and the life that he has purchased for this people. We must give glory and praise and honor because of the triumph of the Lamb. Well, let's pray. Oh, our God, we are thankful for your amazing grace. And we're thankful that we see it throughout your word. And we're thankful that we see it even in the midst of this curse. We're thankful that the seed of the woman crushes the head of the seed of the serpent. And we're thankful that it is the Christ, the Lamb, the one who was slain, the one who died, the one who is reigning now and bringing his kingdom in. And we're thankful, O oh God, for these promises as he cast the devil out, as he's bound him. And he has no might and no power because Christ has won the battle. 
We're thankful that Christ has died for his people and he came to save his people from their sins. And we pray, O oh God, that you would help us to be mindful of these things. Help us to see the reality of this world where we see enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But we're, pray, we're thankful, O oh God, that you do save sinners and call them forth out of darkness. You're the one who is mighty to save and to show forth who truly is the, a part of the seed of the woman. And we're thankful that it's in Christ Jesus. And we're thankful, O oh God, for the triumph of the Lamb. We're thankful for the encouragement that your word brings. We know that the sufferings in this life are but a momentary light affliction. We're thankful, O oh God, we, we love that one day we shall put on the new body. We shall put on the conformed body, the changed body, the self-same bodies, but conformed to the image of Christ. We long for that resurrection from the dead, and we pray, O oh God, that you would come quickly. And we're thankful for your gospel and for the truth and what it signifies we pray, O oh God, that you would encourage us and strengthen our hearts now, even as we come to partake of your supper. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.